to make friends. So I've started walking up and down the street and stopping people and telling them what I'm doing in that moment. And I tell them what I had for breakfast and what I plan on having for dinner. I tell them how I'm feeling when I see them there. And then I've started showing people pictures. I show pictures of me fiddling around in my garage and working in the yard. I show a lot of pictures of what I had for dinner the night before. I show pictures of me in front of landmarks. Pictures of me driving around town, doing really what every other person in America does every day. But I try to make my pictures look much cooler than theirs. I make it sound like I'm having a lot more fun than they are. And I've started listening in on their conversations. And I give them a thumbs up when I like what I hear. It's working too. I've already got four people following me. <laughs> Two cops, a private investigator, and a psychiatrist. Well, as you see on the screen, today is our second half of our discussion on community. Fellowship, friendship, whatever you want to call it. We talk about doing life together. And the question that we're kind of raising is, in the 21st century, in this fast-paced, kind of technologically driven society, can we, can we have the same kind of relationships and the same level of community in the 21st century that we read about in the first century. Last week we talked about some things the Bible has to say about community. This week I want to talk a little bit about what Bay Area is doing about it and what you might be able to do about it as well. I mentioned last week that if you've got someone in your life who is willing to share your struggles and share your victories, if you've got people in your life that, that know you and care about you, that's a tremendous, tremendous blessing. And last week I referenced all of those, or some of those, one another passages. I did a little bit digging this week. Would it surprise you to know that over 90 times in Scripture we read that phrase, one another? And that there are 37 verbs attached to those one another passages? We're told that we are to encourage one another, serve one another, accept one another, instruct one another, speak to one another, submit, comfort, love, admonish, and the list goes on and on and on of all those things that we are to do to and with one another. I'm the one, no, you are the another's. Let me take you back to our anchor text uh, for these two sermons, back in Philippians chapter 2. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Paul is admonishing us to have the same spirit, the same focus, the same love, the same purpose. How are you going to do that with people that you don't know? Now, I mentioned Facebook just a minute ago. If you are tied into social media at all, or if you really read any kind of written print, you will be aware that listicles have become very, very popular. You might not know that's what they're called, but you've seen them and you've read them. Lists of things. Some people say it's just really lazy journalism. 
but things that are, are presented in a list. And so you read all kinds of articles that are entitled things like, Eight Things I Wish I'd Done in My Twenties. Or 15 Things I Want to Teach My Son. Nine Reasons Why I Hate Lists. You know, things like that. I saw last week something that was called the Ultimate Life Listicle. We only had three points. Get up, survive, go back to bed. And personally, I hope that's not me. I hope that that's not all my life is about. I don't want to just be about survival and sleep. I think I was created to be more than that and for more than that. We're talking about community. We've already talked about how important community is. Now, last week I mentioned that being involved in people's lives and have someone involved in your life is just good for your soul. And I made the point, whatever's good for your soul, do that. So, in the spirit of total disclosure and maybe in the spirit of poor journalism, I want to share with you my own listicle this morning. And my listicle is five misconceptions about community. No, everybody loves the idea of community. It's a pretty easy sell. But the reality is, it's difficult. And it takes time. And things that are difficult and things that are take time, that takes time usually isn't something that people are lining up to be involved in. So I want to share with you five misconceptions regarding community. And the first is, it's easy. Because having close relationships sounds so attractive, we like to think that it's got to be easy as well. And I think part of that is because we want things that are right. We want those things to be easy. Unfortunately, what comes easy for me isn't being others-centered. What comes easy for me is being selfish. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Paul says, warn, encourage, help, show patience. Those things aren't easy. Those things are difficult. Turning to others and being others-centered, it's hard. It takes intentionality. And it comes from the overflow of the heart. Community, it's not easy. Second misconception, I don't think it's natural. I just, I just want something that's just going to happen. You hear people say that. I just want something that's just going to kind of happen. I don't want to think about it too much. I just, I just want it to evolve. I always sort of roll my eyes when I hear people say that. Because I've lived long enough to know that things even things in the church, maybe especially things in the church, they don't just happen. It takes an intentionality. I don't mean to remove or diminish the, diminish the, the power of the Holy Spirit or the presence of the Holy Spirit because I think the Holy Spirit oftentimes works in spite of us. I'm just saying that anything larger than you and your best friend, it's going to take some work. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, dear brothers and sisters, I appeal to you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, stop arguing among yourselves. Let there be real harmony 
so there won't be divisions in the church. I plead with you to be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Paul is telling the church in Corinth, you're going to have to work at this. You know, real harmony takes some intentionality. It doesn't come naturally. You've got to work at it. Being devoted to one another, one heart, one mind, one thought and purpose. Those kinds of relationships, they don't just happen. And those kind of relationships don't, uh, aren't formed just by conversations in the lobby. Real community has to be intentional. And sometimes that, that doesn't feel quite as organic as we wish it did. Third misconception regarding community. It'll come to you. Just sit back, relax. You don't have to do a thing, just wait for it. Wait for it. And before long, you too will be enjoying all the blessings and rewards of, of living a life in community. Kind of reminds me of the young guy who decided to go into farming, make that his vocation. Somebody came to him and asked, why did you decide to go into farming? He said, well, I've always dreamed of making millions of dollars in farming like my dad. The guy said, your dad made millions of dollars farming? The young guy said, no, but he always dreamed of it. You can dream about real relationships. And you can dream about having people in your life that really care about you and, and hold you accountable and encourage you. But if that's all it is, it probably won't happen. Now, once you start getting older than high school and college, things get a little more complicated. Because you're not going to have anybody hounding you to get involved in something anymore. Now, as you get a little bit older, Christianity even becomes a little confusing because you can wait and wait and wait, and no preacher, no elder, no deacon is going to come knocking on your door. You're going to have to do something. You've got to get up and go to church. You've got to find a place to fit. You've got to, you've got to join a group. You've got to get involved. Paul says in Romans, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Here's kind of a neat thing about that verse. Paul is saying that we are to pursue things that build each other up. So it's not just about me. And it's not just about you. It's about us working together, pursuing, working on those things that bring us closer to God and, and closer to each other. You can't find real community without being committed to the body. It just won't happen. Fourth misconception regarding community. It's convenient. Let me just go ahead and say out loud what many of you have been thinking. I love the idea of community. I love the ideal of being involved in each other's lives. But the reality of it and the implementation of it can be super annoying. And it can be incredibly inconvenient. And it can be inconvenient. Because now we've got to start rearranging our lives around other people. And as I said, what comes naturally to me, at least, is kind of selfishness. I think about myself first most of the time. So whether it's committing to a small group or, or showing up to help someone in need, community requires us to step outside of our warm, 
cozy, well-defined, much defended comfort zones. To step outside of our bubble and step into someone else's bubble. Or more frightening, to allow someone else to step into our bubble. Again in Romans chapter 12. Don't just pretend that you love others. Really love them. Hate what's wrong. Stand on the side of the good. Love each other with genuine affection. And take delight in honoring each other. Is it convenient for you and your family to, to clean up the house and invite people over? Is it convenient for you to get cleaned up and, and go to someone else's house to meet someone? Probably not. Because we're all really busy. I know you're really busy. And life is really hectic. And we really we value our time and we really protect our time. The community is not convenient. But I'll tell you this, it's worth it. It's worth it because it's good for your soul. And whatever's good for your soul, do that. Which brings me to my final misconception regarding community, and that is, it's optional. A lot of people have the misconception that this thing, doing, doing life together, it's kind of optional. It's like, a, like an insurance rider. It's like a contractional section that we can opt out of if we want to. You know, we can take it or leave it. I mentioned last week that we are not intended to live alone. We're not created to live alone. We're not supposed to be living in isolation. We're supposed to be doing life together. In fact, we're commanded to do life together. Jesus says in John 13, a little bit of context here, he's in the upper room. The cross is very near. And he tells his apostles, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You know, when you read through Scripture, when you read through the Gospels, Jesus didn't give a whole lot of commands. He did a lot of teaching. But as far as thou shalt and thou shalt not, Jesus didn't do a lot of that. Much less than you might imagine. But in John chapter 13 in the upper room, this is most definitely a command. This is a thou shalt. A new command I give you. Thou shalt love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We've been commanded by Jesus himself to show the entire world who we are, what we're about, who we belong to, by the way that we love one another. The Bible has a tremendous amount of say about community. We mentioned that last week. But it's not always easy. And it's not always natural. It's not always going to come to you. It's not always convenient. But it is a commandment. And every single one of God's commandments are meant to make me a better, happier person. Every single thou shalt, thou shalt not in the Bible is meant for my benefit. To make my life better. To make my life more fulfilling. To make me happier. Now, we tend to think about the church's vision 
in terms of programs and ministries and buildings and all those trappings that we kind of fall back into. But I'm not sure that's the real key, being faithful to God. Like I'm pretty sure it's not. I don't think real faithfulness comes in slick marketing campaigns or really neat worship experiences. I think real faithfulness is getting closer to the heart of God. And I think real faithfulness is being more and more like Jesus Christ. Knowing Jesus. Showing Jesus. But how are we going to show Jesus to the world if we can't show Jesus to each other? And I think that's exactly what Jesus had in mind when he said to those disciples in the upper room, a new command I give you, love one another. As I've loved you, love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. How do we show Jesus to the world? Well, we talk about him. We teach. We preach. Absolutely, great commission. Can't get around it. How do we show Jesus to the world? Well, we serve. You know, we help the poor and we help those who are in need. Absolutely, Matthew chapter 25. Helping people who are marginalized. That's, uh, that's pure and undefiled religion. Can't get around it. But one night in an upper room, when Jesus was measuring his time with his friends in hours, not days, and he was telling them things that he really wanted them to get and really wanted them to understand. He looked them in the eye and said, here's how people are going to know who you belong to. Here's how you are going to point people to me. By the way, you love one another. As I have loved you, people are going to know that you're my disciple when you love each other. So a true test of discipleship is, are we loving the way Jesus loved us? Are we loving each other the way Jesus loved us? Sacrificially. Let me take you back to Philippians chapter 2. Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble. Thinking, about, thinking of others is better than yourself. Don't think only about your own affairs. But be interested in others too and what they're doing. Your attitude should be the same as that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. To love like Jesus loves is to lower yourself, to become a servant. To think of others as better than yourself. And by the way, this is nothing new. You all know this. We all know this. But sometimes we get so hung up on other things that we kind of miss and we fail on the, the basic stuff. So, I have this dream for the church. I have this dream for the Bay Area Church Christ that there is a place where everyone has the heart of a servant. And where everyone is looking to the best interests of others instead of ourselves, where everyone is humbled, and where we love each other. And when we get better at loving each other, I am convinced that God starts opening doors. And God starts giving us opportunities. And we have more conversations and more opportunities to point others to Jesus 
and allow them to experience and enjoy the same kind of blessings that we enjoy. Okay. Let's, uh, let's bring it down to Bay Area. Let's bring it down to you and me, us. Since this congregation was established, small groups have been a part of our ministry system. For almost 20 years, this congregation has used small groups as a part of our ministry system. The church has used small groups as part of the ministry system since Acts chapter 2. We have small groups here at Bay Area. Orlando Henlon is the elder that oversees the small groups. Jim Ingram is the deacon that has worked for small groups for several years. Currently, we have 11 small groups that are meeting, different places around town, here at the building in some cases. The list is on the screen behind me. There's some information out in the lobby as well. It's on our website. I mentioned last week that this particular ministry flies a little bit under the radar screen. But I would hope that the past two weeks have at least got you to consider maybe being involved in a small group or, if you're very bold, possibly hosting or teaching a small group. We're trying to make a few minor adjustments to our small groups. We want them to be as accessible as they possibly can be, and we understand that there are some objections that some people have and there are some obstacles that some people have as far as joining and being a part of a small group, and we're trying to address those. And here's the biggest objection that I hear, and it's, it's legitimate, by the way. The biggest objection that I hear from people saying, this is why I, I really hesitate to being part of a small group, I hesitate to commit to something that is going to last forever. <laughs> I'm hesitant to, to, to tie into a small group because that group is going to meet until Jesus returns. And I'm going to be expected to be there until Jesus returns. It's kind of like a timeshare. You can get in, but you can't get back out. There's no end in sight. Would you consider, would you consider being part of a small group for three months, 12 weeks? We are, many of our groups, are going to be beginning a 12-week cycle in February. There will be a definite start date and a definite drop-dead end date. At the end of those 12 weeks, you are free to find another group. You are free to take a break. The groups might be reshuffled. They might not be. That group might continue to meet. It might not. The same people might continue to meet. They might not. But that cycle will be over. At the end of 12 weeks, your leader is going to say, thanks for coming. They'll explain what's on the horizon, but that cycle ends. And what that means is you'll be able to plan a little bit better. And you'll be able to, you'll be able to, to craft your schedule around what's going on. Because we're all busy. And we've all got commitments. And we've all got stresses. And what that means also is you might choose to take a break you might choose to go be a part of another small group to get those kind of relationships with another group of people. We want to structure something that we can plan around. Another common concern is, is it going to be worth my time? Because my time is very valuable to me. 
The short answer, yes. Expanded answer, next week, the last Sunday of January, George Klein is going to be sharing some information about the, uh, the mission work going on in India. You're going to want to be sure and be here next week. In two weeks, the first Sunday in February, which I think is the 7th, I am going to be beginning a 12-week sermon series going through the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. I'm so excited about that series. It is, uh, it's powerful stuff. I think there's more applicable life lessons to be learned in those three chapters than maybe anywhere else in the Scriptures. So we're going to be going through a 12-week series on Sunday mornings here from the pulpit through the, through the Sermon on the Mount. Many of our small groups, I think I can say most of our small groups, are going to be going through that same information. Randy Harris, who many of you will recognize the name, he's an educator, writer, incredible um, communicator out of Texas, has put together study guides through the book of, or through the Sermon on the Mount. It's a video section. Each week there's a 10, 12 minute video of him sharing some thoughts and then some discussion questions. I've seen the material. I've gone through it. It is excellent. It's interesting. It's applicable. You'll be blessed by it and those small groups will be following pretty much the same thing that we're talking about on Sunday morning from the pulpit. And so we are really encouraging you to consider being a part of a small group. Pick up some information out here in the lobby. Check out the website. You can Google Bay Area Church of Christ, and the information is there on the website. And I want to close by, by saying this. This really isn't just another we-need-you-to-volunteer kind of spiel. I think it's much, much more than that. I think this really gets to the heart of what Christianity is all about. Because when you became a Christian, when you were baptized, you were baptized into the body. And you were baptized into the body of Jesus Christ. You made a commitment. And that commitment leads to hospitality and friendship and community. You can't be a friend just in the church building. You know, we don't come to church to get friends. Really, we come to church to be a friend, right? And so our friendships become part of our ministry system. And it becomes part of one anothering, those friendships. It takes a sacrifice. But being involved in other people's lives, it takes a sacrifice. But if we can't sacrifice that much, are we really being that much like Jesus Bay Area has intentionally not had Sunday night services so that we would be able to, to meet somewhere else during the week, to enjoy fellowship and some study and encouraging one another somewhere else during the week. And those small groups are a really practical way to live out our Christianity, to fulfill those one another passages that we read about. Because I'll, I'll just be very open with you. Six elders... Two ministers, soon to be three. We can't keep up with everybody in a 400-member congregation. We can't know what's going on in everyone's lives all the time in every situation. And that's why we need all of us to be part of this network of friends 
this network of relationships to encourage each other and to be there for each other, to teach and admonish again all of those one another things that we read about in Scripture. Not so much for what we can get out of it, but how we can be more like Jesus. It really is an opportunity for us to be more like Jesus. And again, isn't that kind of the definition of faithfulness? Being more like Jesus. I don't know exactly what you do with a lesson like this. I hope that you go home and talk about it. I hope that you pray about it. I hope that you'll pay really close attention to where the Spirit might be leading you and nudging you to maybe be a part of something that you haven't been a part of before. You need to get involved in some things you haven't been involved with before. Some of those obstacles, I hope, will be removed. And, and you would consider not just the blessings that you can receive, but the blessing that you can be to the family here, living in community. And as a family here, as always, we don't want to miss an opportunity for you to be able to share with the family. And there might be something going on in your life this week that you really need the prayers of people who love you. It might have something to do with this lesson. It very well might not. But as a family, like we always do, there's something on your heart, something you need prayers with, something you need to share, maybe something that you need to allow us to take to God for you. There's going to be some people here at the front, and we will minister to with you any way that we can while we stand and sing a song. Let's spend water.